This evening I'd like to um, reflect on the theme of wise concentration. Ajahn Chah, uh, one of the great forest masters, once said that when we have no real home, we're like aimless travelers out on the road, going this way for a while, then that way. Sometimes we even forget where we're going. Until we return to our real home, we feel ill at ease whatever we're doing. When we find our real home, we are at home everywhere. This search for a home, a sense of belonging, a home of authenticity, I think is a very ancient spiritual metaphor. The story of that search is told and retold in countless different ways. You see it in the Zen tradition. I don't know if you've ever seen the ox herding pictures, this series of 12 pictures which really tracks the journey of a young person who sets out on this this journey to seek the elusive ox, which is a metaphor for liberation. And in that, their, their search, their wandering, goes through a variety of different trials, exploring one path after another. And yet, somehow, even though they, they encounter all these challenges, somehow persevering, remaining undissuaded, <clears throat> until they begin to glimpse the ox. This search for authenticity, the search for a sense of home, we, it's an archetypal theme we hear repeated in our fairy tales, in stories of wandering tribes, and we certainly see that that theme repeated in the stories of the early Buddhist monks and nuns and in the life of the Buddha. What we actually see is in these different cultures, very different people, and yet sharing this often unspoken aspiration, a sense of searching, almost picking up a a kind of ancient echo. And that search is often involves leaving behind the world of familiarity, the world of, that has felt secure or safe. One of the early Buddhist nuns wrote, she said, I gave up my house and set out into homelessness. I gave up my cattle and all that I loved. I gave up desire and hate. My ignorance was thrown out. I pulled out craving along with its root, and now I am quenched and still. And then the stories in the the tales we read about these journeys, they speak of a very timeless sense of longing, And it's both a timeless sense of longing and a kind of timeless story that equally begins, I think, with a 
an equally timeless sense of dissatisfaction or unease. Because clearly what motivates that search for that authenticity, what motivates that search for a sense of belonging is the feeling of not belonging. The feeling of not being at home, the feeling that there is perhaps something amiss or incomplete. And I often think of these stories that they, they are really telling the story of a kind of mature dissatisfaction. And there is such a thing as mature dissatisfaction. And I think this is not so unfamiliar to many people where, you know, we we may survey or kind of look at all we have done and achieved and gathered in our life and we honor it and we celebrate it and feel that somehow we have lived well. We know that we have done things well. And yet even in that honoring and celebrating of what we've done well, we sometimes also acknowledge that all that we sometimes gather, all that we become, all that we achieve, doesn't necessarily have the power to really satisfy or quench that very deep longing, somehow doesn't have the ability to deliver an abiding peace and freedom. And I think most of us know, in truth, that the source of genuine happiness, the source of genuine peace, of freedom, is actually not in all the things that we can become or achieve, but that its root truly is, and perhaps will always be, within our own hearts and minds. I think there exists often a kind of intuition, a voice of intuition, a sense of possibility that can remain somehow a mystery to us. You know, when I started to practice as a teenager, I have to confess I really found it very hard to make a great deal of sense of what I was being taught. And my practice was really the pits, actually. And, and it, you know, it felt very much like a stumbling practice. Um, and yet, strangely, this, this kind of sense of incomprehension coexisted with a much deeper sense of really being totally at home. I had no idea what I was doing, but I actually felt completely at home in not knowing what I was doing. So much so that I I think there was almost nothing that would have uprooted me from where I was. And at that time, I, I lived in the in northern India, in the foothills of the Himalayas. And, and during the time that I lived there, it was a time when there was a war between India and Pakistan. And um, because it was fairly close to some army bases, the, the police decided that um, it was a hot spot. It was a danger zone. And I think they also looked at this these foreigners as potential spies, although I think... 
that took a great leap of their imagination if they looked at this sort of motley bunch of hippies and imagined they could be there gathering intelligence. They were concerned for our security and safety. Every day, the police would climb the mountain to deport us, basically then to deport us. They had to serve us with these deportation orders that we had to accept. And every day when the police come, we, we would slip out and hide, hide in the trees, and then they would go back down the hill, and the next day they would climb back up the hill, and this went on day after day until eventually they gave up. And, and I think about it afterwards, you know, rationally it really made no sense at all. You know, much of the time that I, I was there, I was, uh, you know, quite sick. You know, my most com- ongoing companions were rats. It was often, you know, kind of cold and not in one level quite great. And yet intuitively it made perfect sense. Intuitively it just made perfect sense. And it's, it doesn't surprise me when I hear many people who come on retreats often speak of a similar sense of coming home. And again, logically, it can make no sense at all. You know, if you went into Barry Town Center and tried to promote the virtues of sitting with pain and curbing your impulses and you know, not being in control of your diet and following this strange schedule, again, you know, it would look not so logical. And yet, I think often that the sense of being at home comes with this capacity for just once in our life to be able to lay down that burden of having to become someone, having to be something special, having to prove ourselves. And although it may not seem like it at this point in the retreat, we start to savor that sweetness of just being able to be. There can be a shadow side to this mature dissatisfaction that I was talking about. And the shadow side of that mature dissatisfaction actually can govern our lives very powerfully. My sense is that when we are confused, when we are very uncertain or even afraid in our life, that this sacred hunger, this longing for a sense of authenticity In confusion, it can become a kind of existential restlessness. I think a a feeling of never being enough, never having enough, never being good enough. And my sense is that this myth of incompleteness, of not being enough, is a very powerful one in our world inwardly and outwardly. It can be a very powerful myth that shadows us through our lives. And it's a myth, of course, that's constantly being reinforced by the chorus of voices and models that surround us about the ideal person, about perfection, about who we should be. 
And in many ways, it's very difficult, I think, for us not to absorb and adopt many of those models, and we, we see them inwardly in, in the form of the inner critic, in the voice of the inner judge, so that no matter what happens for us, no matter what we do, what we have, what we become, what we've achieved, there's always this kind of nagging voice in the background that just says, it's just not good enough. In the Buddhist tradition, I think this is sometimes called the hungry ghost. And the hungry ghost, I think, can really be alive and well. And the nature of the hungry ghost is that it is insatiable, can never be satisfied, can never be fed enough. Its character of the hungry ghost is to prowl, to be always searching, for something more, for something better. And the suffering of the hungry ghost is never being able to rest, never being able to be still, to be able to stop. I think its suffering is never being able to really find that deeper sense of contentment and ease and peace. Contentment with what is is a rare and precious blessing in our life something that the the kind of hungry ghost is always somehow missing. Instead, I think the hungry ghost can almost kind of live and sleep and breathe this existential restlessness. And have you noticed it, you know, in, in your days, you know, how we can wake up in the morning and already the moment our eyes open and the moment our minds start moving, we're prowling, you know, we're looking for something that is going to actually entertain us, amuse us, reassure us, you know, satisfy us, gratify us in some way. And the hungry ghost can be part of us. It, it can really sort of take up residence in our heart, always seeking and yet rarely finding for more than a few minutes at a time a genuine peace. Uh, my sense is that if we introduce to the hungry ghost the question, what at this moment is lacking? What in this moment is lacking? I think the answers of the hungry ghost could probably fill a book. Not the right mind, not the right body, not the right experience, not the right meditation, you know, not the right environment, not enough love, not enough satisfaction, not enough happiness. It just goes on and on. Wanting and restlessness are kind of the nature of that feeling of not being at home. They're not unfamiliar experiences to us. And that wanting and restlessness, then, of course, is often kind of oscillating between, you know, trying to find the comfort zones and trying to avoid the discomfort zones. And almost as if, like, comfort and reassurance become a sort of substitute for genuine peace and completeness. And I, I think this is very much, I, I mean, I don't like to be, you know, there are wonderful things about our culture, obviously, but there is also an encouragement to kind of keep the hungry ghost alive. You know, where we all become aware of more and more potential for comfort and more and more potential for discomfort. 
you know, they we're all aware of more and more things that can displease us and displease us. More things we could pursue, more things we could become, more things we could buy and yet can't afford, more possibilities of becoming someone special, and more possibilities of failure. We can, I think, when we are really gripped by this sort of appetite of the hungry ghost, continually sort of abandon ourselves and abandon the moment. And it's almost as if that appetite becomes more and more acute because it seems to be frustrated over and over again. And I often think it is an awareness of the futility of that endless prowling that really, for many of us, encourages us to turn inwardly and to really to begin to ask some of the important questions in our life. You know, does all of this kind of prowling, really does it have the power to bring us the, the authenticity, the peace, the contentment we yearn for? we start to ask those questions of what, where, what is the source of happiness? Where is, where is the home of freedom? What does it mean even to be authentic in our life? What does it mean to feel that there is really enough? I think when we do that, we start to step back a little bit from that kind of compulsive prowling. And we start to ask those questions, and they're questions that often we can't ask because the noise of the sangha of hungry ghosts is so strong in our life, you know, with these spoken and unspoken expectations that somehow we must earn love, we must earn acceptance, we must earn happiness, we must earn rest, where really perhaps it's really not that far away from us. Really not that far away from us. And I think it's so important to remember this in the context of our practice here. You know, because sometimes when we come on a retreat and we, we can bring the hungry ghost to the retreat, you know, and we feel it on the cushion, you know, and, you know, the, the sitting's not good enough, you know, and, you know, and, and that walking wasn't good enough, and I'm not good enough in it, and I need to have a different experience, and I need to do something better, and maybe if I just got this kind of technique right, you know, and got five breaths in a row, you know, maybe then I'd be happy. But it's not really about that, is it? And it's so simple in a way what we do here, to learn to be at home with ourselves. To learn to be at home in ourselves, to learn to be at home in our lives, in our world. To find that sense of ease and contentment. And not to be so dependent upon becoming. I think as long we start to see that as long as the hungry ghost is alive and well, we will walk in these circles like aimless travelers, often ending up in the very same place where we started from, the feeling of there not being enough. In, in the Buddhist tradition, in Buddhist teaching, this walking in circles is called samsara. 
And it's within this framework of wandering, it's within this framework of walking in circles that we learn to cultivate wise concentration. It's within this framework of the habit of abandoning the moment and abandoning ourselves. This is where we learn to cultivate wise concentration. Now, I think many people have an uneasy or an even ambivalent relationship to the word concentration. You know, sometimes I think it reminds us of the times in our lives in the past where we've been scolded and told to pay attention, pay attention, and it it can have this sort of forceful or forcing feel feel to it. I think sometimes people think of concentration as being this tight or contracted or a kind of exclusive, defended space. And at true, at times concentration is associated in many people's experience of concentration is one where there's a lot of forcing and a lot of striving and a lot of tension. Now, I would say that in the beginning, as we learn to, to cultivate wise concentration, there, there inevitably is some tension. But it's not a negative tension. I think it's very important to see that. In a way, it's a very creative tension. Because what, what is the tension when we're learning to be truly attentive in our life? It's, it's the tension of learning to remember in the places where we're prone to forget. It's the tension of learning to be awake in the places where we're most numb. It's it's the tension of cultivating consciousness and awareness in the places where where we're the most unconscious and the most compulsive. Learning, as I mentioned last night, learning to remember something that is too important to forget what it means to be present in our life, what it means to be still, what it means to, to find that inner calmness and radiance, what it means to, learn, to calm the restless wandering of our hearts and minds. We're remembering what it means to be at home in our life. Now, we, we may carry inwardly some of these kind of associations of stories of concentration being tight or contracted. But then I think it's good, you know, we might wonder, why is wise concentration one of the paramis, one of the noble qualities of heart that is part of the fabric of compassion? Wise concentration is one of the factors of enlightenment. It's part of the Eightfold Path of Awakening. So surely what is meant by wise concentration then is not cultivating a defensive and a sort of closed state, but what is instead meant is really cultivating a place of very deep ease and stillness and happiness. In my understanding, there are are two dimensions to wise concentration. One of those dimensions is wise life concentration. And the other is meditative concentration. Now, these two dimensions are not separate. They're They're not apart from each other. 
Both of them are trainings in recollection. Both of them are trainings in remembering. You know, sometimes people uh, almost express a sense of real shock when they come on retreat and find that it's so hard to pay attention. And yet sometimes we look at our life and we see that we really don't practice wise concentration in our life all the time. You know, that sometimes our life can feel very, you know, very jagged, very fragmented, over-chaotic. And then we, we sit down in a cushion and say, why is it hard to pay attention? Because we haven't really got, you know, we're not really cultivating the training in our life. And yet it is part of wise concentration. We're remembering even learning what it means to be still. We're learning the ways in which our attention awakens the moment. And I think this is such an important thing to understand about wise attention, is that it illuminates the moment. That is the nature of it, and that is its purpose. You know, a simple experiment with this, which I'm sure would not be a stranger to any of you, you know, if you go outside and you walk on the path in the front of the building, and your mind is all over the place, you know, you've got a million thoughts, and you're, you know, you're dealing with past and future. Basically, what do you see of the world in that moment? I mean, you could walk back in the building and someone could say, did you happen to notice this really wonderful lilies beside the palace? It were lilies. And yet, if you go outside and you walk on that path with really the intention to be present, the attention to bring attention to that moment, it's almost as if it awakens the world. It awakens the world so the world can be seen. And this is really part of what we do in cultivating wise attention and meditation. We're learning to illuminate not only that outer world so that we can see and be touched more deeply, but we're learning to, to illuminate our inner world to sense, really, the nature of that world. Now, both dimensions of concentration, whether it's wise life or meditative concentration, really ask us to release or to let go of the tendency to be distracted, to surrender distractedness. Because distractedness is really the place where the hungry ghost lives, always, you know, seeking for something other, something better, something new, prowling the world, and then often then abandoning what is. Now, I say renouncing distractedness and not renouncing distractions, because nothing, in my understanding, is essentially a distraction. Nothing has written on it, I am a distraction. You know, in the Zen tradition, there's a saying that there's nowhere on earth where it's safe to spit. And it really means that there's nowhere and nothing that is not sacred or that is not ripe in its invitation to us to be present with it. You know, and that includes the cough in the meditation room. You know, it includes the humming mosquito. It includes the pain in our knee, just as it includes the, the, the sound of the bird or the, the sight of the flower. 
Renouncing distractedness, we are learning actually to be compassionate to ourselves, to let go of this chorus of voices, often inner voices, is so often telling us something is lacking. Something is missing in this moment. There's a poem by Naomi Shiavnai again. She says, All night I stare into the mirror at the deep wrinkle beginning to show on my forehead above the right eye. I move the muscles of my face to see where it comes from, and it comes from everywhere. Pain, joy, the look of being puzzled and raising one eyebrow. It comes from the way I say yes too much. I say yes when I mean no, and the wrinkle grows. It's cutting a line across my head like a crack in a creek bottom, starting small shiver between two stones. It ends up splitting the bed. Renouncing distractedness is actually sometimes learning to say no in the places where we say yes too much. And I think we learn to say no not out of aversion, not out of rejection, not out of fear, but we're remembering not to be dissuaded. You know, it's like when you sit and a thought arises, you know, and it has that juicy potential, you know, and you know you could squeeze a lot of entertainment out of it. (laughs) You learn to say no. You know, it's like when you get up from the cushion and you suddenly have that thought of, you know, I could, uh, you know, get in my car, go out for a pizza, you know. You learn to say no. You know, and you see that tendency arise in the mind to get into some whirlwind uh, of self-criticism or self-judgment. We know it doesn't serve us well. We learn to say no. And there's such a a kind of discriminating wisdom in knowing the places where we need to say no because we say yes too much. And it's not aversion, it's not fear, but it's about being not, not being dissuaded, not being dissuaded from what we really value, not being dissuaded from our intentions, not being dissuaded from peace, from stillness, from wholeness. We're saying no because we're remembering sometimes to listen to those quieter voices within ourselves that speak of belonging. Those quieter voices that are too often drowned out by the chorus of voices that divert us from being here. There are so many dimensions, I think, to wise concentration in our lives. And that the times that we need to develop wise concentration is really equal to the number of times we find ourselves being lost. Lost in impulsiveness, lost in habit. <clears throat> How many times in our life, in our day, Do we find ourselves harboring resentment instead of the forgiveness we would wish to offer someone? 
How many times do we find ourselves berating ourselves instead of offering the loving kindness we treasure? How many times do we find ourselves resisting pain instead of bringing the openness and the loving kindness that we know would bring healing? How many times do we become impatient when we know that patience is needed? How many times do we find ourselves you know, at the tea urn or wandering at the notice board and being dissuaded from that ground of simplicity, from that ground of mindfulness. This is where we develop wise concentration, not just on the cushion, but in all those moments when we find that our life is being guided by habit, by impulse, by compulsiveness, rather than by awareness. You know, impulse is so fast, isn't it? I mean, you know, you know, you you sit, you know, and you, you know, a little sensation. Your hand is up there so fast. You know, it, it, you not so much in a silent retreat, but how often, you know, something offends us, and and the the words of impulse are flying out of our mouth so fast. You know, how many times we just find ourselves sort of reacting so quickly. And your impulse is so, it seems to arise so quick that it seems much more powerful than our awareness. And yet, when we really look at the times when our lives are being governed by impulse and the effect sometimes of impulsiveness, we know that those impulses really are often the places where we're most unconscious, where we're most dissuaded from that path of wakefulness. So gently, so gently and yet with incredible devotion and incredible commitment, we learn to come back to the path. We learn to come back to this capacity for wise attention, for wise concentration. And what in the beginning and what right now might feel so effortful and so hard becomes with practice much more effortless. You know, sometimes I think people love to read, you know, the stories about the sort of the trials, you know, of the great yogis and the Buddhas in their search for peace and liberation. And we think, oh, well, they could do that because they were great yogis and because they were great Buddhas. And we couldn't do the same. But I think we need to remember that just by simply acting in this way, remembering our way, they became great yogis and great Buddhas. I think what is often helpful, you know, what I often think is really helpful is just to remember, you know, in the times when we feel so lost, and we feel we can never, ever get back to the breath or we can never get back to our steps or, you know, we can never get back to simplicity. Instead of thinking that we need some, you know, major heroic effort, sometimes I think what we really just need to remember is to be still for a moment. Just to be still for a moment. That that's the beginning of wise concentration just to be still for a moment. I love the poem by David Wagner called Lost. 
He says, stand still. The trees ahead and the bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here, and you must treat it as a powerful stranger. Must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes. Listen, it answers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again, saying here. No two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. The other dimension of wise concentration is meditative concentration, which, as I mentioned, the two dimensions of life concentration and meditative concentration, they're interwoven and they support each other. Now, again, meditative concentration, it's interesting, wise concentration in meditation is not born of overdoing, not born of striving, it's not born of forcing. But again, wise concentration meditation really rests upon a sense of ease, a sense of focus, a sense of knowing where we are going. You know, the Buddha said that in the mind of happiness, attention finds a true foundation. I think this is really important to remember when we practice. You know, because sometimes we think, well, if I, you know, if I really force enough and I really you know, push enough, the outcome is going to be happiness. It doesn't make any sense to me. It seems to me like somehow we need to bring this quality of ease, this quality of rest, this quality of gracefulness into how we concentrate, how we pay attention. The happiness is not perhaps our usual association with happiness. You know, I don't expect on a retreat that every time you come into the meditation hall, you know, you should come in singing little songs, you know, and little ditties, you know, and try and convince yourself about how happy you are. But I think there does come with practice and in practice that place where we come into the hall and we smile at our cushion. And we go to walk and we smile at our walking place. And it's not because everything that happens there is euphoric or blissful or rapturous, but because we are remembering really what this time is dedicated to. Not to achieving, not to becoming, not to being perfect but that this time is dedicated to simplicity, to mindfulness, to letting go, to peace, and paying attention to just this one breath, this one step. And then when we do that, with each breath and with each step, we are really learning to make our home in the moment. It is almost as if we are reclaiming our sense of belonging. It doesn't mean that there are no impulses that arise. It doesn't mean that there's no habits that arise. But we do learn with courage and with kindness to be able to say, not this, 
not now. To remember where we are, to remember where we're going. There's a wonderful saying, it says, in this perfect secluded place, a mountain hermitage, everything one does is good. Learning to be a little more still and quiet and receptive in our hearts, this is the mountain hermitage we are cultivating. Our mountain hermitage is the mindfulness, the attentiveness that awakens the moment, illuminates inwardly and outwardly. And in that mountain hermitage, I think we do begin to find that sometimes we don't need to keep telling our stories so much and so often. And we can begin to listen to the story that is being told to us from this moment, from this life. We listen to the quieter voices that remind us that our capacity for peace, our capacity for freedom, our capacity for wakefulness and belonging are actually right here. You know, one of the great benefits of deepening in meditative concentration is actually the discovery of such a depth of inner happiness and inner joy and stillness within our own hearts. You know, the Buddha speaks so often that we don't cultivate wise concentration in order to be miserable, but for joy. But for joy, for that sense of being, that sense of belonging. Deepening in wise concentration, we do really come to know that the source of happiness, the source of joy, is truly in our own hearts. And that is where we find this sense of home. And the journey we're making is not a journey to somewhere else. It is a journey back to ourselves. It is a journey back to what is truly possible for us. I'd like to end with a poem, if I may. Since I awoke this morning in the gold light, turning this way and that, thinking for a moment it was one day like any other. But the veil had gone from my darkened heart, and I thought it must have been the quiet candlelight that filled my room. It must have been the first easy rhythm with which I breathed myself to sleep. It must have been the prayer I said, speaking to the otherness of the night. And I thought, this is is the good day you could meet your love. This is the black day someone close to you could die. This is the day you realize how easily the thread is broken between this world and the next. And I found myself sitting up in the quiet pathway of light. This is the bright home in which I live. This is where I ask my friends to come. This is where I want to love all the things it has taken me so long to learn to love. This is the temple of my adult aloneness, and I belong to that aloneness 
as I belong to my life. And there is no house like the house of belonging. We could have just a couple of moments quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.